0: All right, come on in everybody and find a seat and we will get started. Please come on in. You'll need some notes and these are lesson two, but this is our second session in lesson two. So it's a continuation of the notes that you received last week if you happen to bring those back. If not, the guys have some. So over here, anybody need? And who's got this section covered? Daniel right here. Anybody over here? Everybody have? Great work. Thanks, guys. Looks like everybody has. Page nine, we will be picking up on page nine in those notes. Let me mention some announcements, things that are coming up. This Saturday at nine o'clock is a breakfast for our men. James, got one right here. Thank you. Men, there's a breakfast in this room at 9 o'clock this coming Saturday and we always have a great time with that as Pastor Rich mentioned in the announcements the food's always great and plentiful. We also have a a guest speaker. Uh, Dave McMillan is a financial uh, planner, counselor and he's going to be here and he's going to be talking to us about how we can plan our finances in a way that stewards what God's entrusted to us, pleases Him then with uh, the way we handle that and helps our families and our churches and everything that we're invested in. That's this Saturday at 9 o'clock. We also have Enchanted Trails, our uh, big annual outreach event coming up on the 29th, Saturday the 29th. So just a couple of weeks away, and we still need, I think Pastor Rich said, 30 more bags of candy, 30 bags of 200. Uh, So if you can bring in a bag, between now and then, we have a receptacle to put that in uh, out near the welcome desk in the lobby. That would be great. November 11 and 12, Friday and Saturday, Friday evening, and then you can stay all day on Saturday at Gull Lake, the retreat center. We're having our marriage retreat, and we have said we're not having a, a guest speaker for this this year. The reason is what I said in the first hour, and that is we had a full summer of instruction on marriage, so we thought we would devote this to allowing you and your spouse to spend uh, time together at the beautiful place in Bill Lake and then couples together enjoying each other's company. But on Saturday morning, we are going to have a a panel discussion and I'm hoping that that will be helpful to all who attend. And as I said in the first hour, we're going to have represented on that panel over a hundred years worth of uh, marriage and some experience in marriage and in parenting. And so I encourage you to consider coming And I think you'll enjoy the time, the time with each other, with other couples, but also with the instruction that comes from the the panel discussion as as well. You can sign up for that on our website. And then lastly, on November 27th, Sunday the 27th is our next Ordinance Sunday. Ordinance Sunday, during our worship hour, we devote the entire hour to the uh, observance of the Lord's table, to communion. And then that evening at 5 o'clock is our next baptism. Those are the two ordinances that Christ gave to his church, communion and baptism. That's why we call it Ordinance Sunday. If you have never been baptized, meaning you have never been immersed in water to symbolize the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, if that's never happened with you, then you've not been baptized as the Bible requires. It's something that Christ commands for all of his followers. And we would love, uh, if you are eligible for baptism, we would love to talk to you about that. And we we can do that by you filling out a simple one-page baptism application, ask for it at the welcome desk, fill that out, turn it in to them, they'll get it to me, I'll follow up with you, and we'll go from there. All right, this is our fourth session in worry-free decision-making, lesson two, so we spent two weeks on the first lesson and now two weeks on the second lesson. Let me remind you about what we have covered that people worry and fret about decisions because if we are Christians, we want to please God with our lives and we are concerned that we may displease Him by failing to find His perfect will. And I talked in the very first week about how that idea of God's perfect will has uh, been taught for for many decades, especially when you are at crucial points of decision-making in your life when you're a young adult and you have lots of things that you need to decide about career or college or a mate and all of those things. Trying to find God's perfect will for your life was something that was emphasized uh, upon Christian young people. And I remember that very very keenly when I was that, that age. And many people then go through life wondering if I made the wrong choices back when I was 18, 19, 20, 22. And I've missed God's perfect will for the rest, rest of my life. So it can be something that can be debilitating because you're afraid to make a choice. And understandably, because if this is going to, if this is going to throw my life off kilter for its remainder, and I've got the perfect will of God that I have to find, uh, and I blow it, well then, that's more pressure than most of us can handle. And so there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, a lot of worry that goes with that. There are two things you can do then. Two ways that uh, God's will is first, not two things you can do, I'll give you the two things you can do. Let me remind you of the two ways that God's will is used in Scripture. That God's will is used both of His sovereign will, but also of His moral will. God's sovereign will and His moral will. And God's sovereign will is whatever comes to to pass. And only God knows His sovereign will. God has decreed and God has planned everything that is going to happen. And this is why the Bible can give you how everything is going to turn out in the last book of the Bible. This is the way it's going to happen. That's because God has decreed how it's going to turn out and everything that's going to lead up to that. So God's sovereign will is His decreed will, God's, God's plan. But only God knows it. You don't know God's sovereign will, and in fact, you can't miss God's sovereign will. No one can miss God's sovereign will by definition. We're all in God's sovereign plan. We all fit into it. We all play a role in it. So when you're looking for God's perfect will, you're not looking for a sovereign will. The other way it's used is His moral will or sometimes called His revealed will, that God has made known what He wants, revealed it. And we are supposed to then make our choices and our decisions accordingly, in a way that matches what God has said pleases Him, what He wants, what He desires, His moral will. So, yes, there is a perfect will, in the sense that God has planned and God has decreed all that's going to happen and your life fits into it and my life fits into it. And everything that's gone on in your life, even all the junk that's happened in your life in the past, the junk you've done or the junk that's been done to you, and we all have both in a fallen world, all of that fits into God's perfect will in that sense that He has a sovereign plan for everyone and everything. But that's not revealed. You don't know what it is until after the fact. You don't know God's sovereign will until tomorrow, for today. His moral will is revealed, but you want to do that perfectly too. (laughs) So you want to find God's perfect will. God's perfect will is really ultimately, it's, it's His sovereign will, everything that's going to happen, So we look at what God has made known, what He's revealed, what He said in Scripture about what He likes and what He wants us to do and make our decisions accordingly. But because we're Christians, because we love God, because He first loved us, we want to do that perfectly. So in a moral sense, listen to this now, in a moral sense, no one is in God's perfect will, in a moral sense, since all of us are to some extent immoral. Since all of us are sinners, since all of us are fallen, none of us, therefore, has done or will do God's moral will perfectly. So this whole quest for God's perfect will is something that's sent us on a goose chase. Yes, God has a perfect will in His sovereignty, but we don't know what that is. And then in terms of His moral will, the things that He's revealed and told us to do, yes, I want to do that as best I can if I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to do that perfectly. And so none of us have, are in God's moral will for the entirety of our, our lives. So now what do you do? I've got God's sovereign will. I've got God's moral will. I can't, find, I can't affect His sovereign will. And... It is what it is, it's going to happen. and with regard to his moral will, I'm a sinner and I have blown it and I'll blow it again in the, in the future. So what do I do what do I do? A couple of things that you do. One, plug in God's sovereign will to your moral failures because His sovereign will overrules the things you mess up. Plug in God's sovereign will to your moral failures because God's sovereign will overrules the things you mess up. It's such a blessing to know that today I can mess things up, I can get it wrong, and God is sovereignly overruling in His world for His purposes such that Romans 8.28 is true, that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose and when it says for those who love him and are called according to his purpose that's not a a condition to say well if you don't love him perfectly enough <laughs> then he's not going to do this no it's saying God does us for Christians that's what that's saying God does this for his people God works all things together for good what a comfort that is knowing that you mess things up and I mess things up and will again in the future. So what do you do with the fact that you can't pursue God's sovereign will, and in God's moral will, you'll never do it perfectly. What you do is plug in God's sovereign will as a comfort because He overrules our failures, including our sins, in His sovereign will. But here's the second thing you do. Find your righteousness outside of yourself. You see, because if you're trying to find your righteousness in your decisions and in your choices and in getting it all right, you're in a world of hurt. Because nobody does that right. Nobody does that perfectly. And when I say nobody, I mean nobody, none of us. Outside of Jesus Christ, the only perfect human being, none of us does that. So lose the idea that, all, that the world hangs on all of your decisions. Find your righteousness outside of you. You know, something like this looks good in, you know, needlepoint or cross stitch or whatever, whatever it is. To say, you know, every person's life is the sum total of their choices. I mean, you could put that out on Facebook and you get a bunch of likes and all of that. Every person's life is the sum total of their choices. And, uh, you know, if I see you put that on Facebook, I'm not going to like it. I'm going to go, nonsense. <laughs> Number one, your, your, life, your life includes stuff you didn't choose, but rather things other people chose for you and imposed on you. Am I right? Things that happened to you. And you're affected by that. Now, you have to respond to them, and you have to make choices in response to that. I I certainly grant. But this idea that we are all just, you know, making our choices and making our own way, and we make it either good or bad, and it all depends on us, few things could be more non-Christian than that. it puts all of it, it puts the onus on us it puts the burden on us and the tenor of the bible over and over is that it's the grace of god given to you because you don't get all this stuff right in fact you often get it wrong so my advice is as you're trying to make these choices yes we want to please god for sure but but understand you're not going to do it perfectly no one has So find your righteousness outside of yourself. Christians' lives are not the sum of the total of the the choices that we make. Rather, Christians' lives are the sum of God's gracious choice to overrule the choices we make. (laughs) We're the sum total of the grace of God in our lives. That's what we are. And that's why the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am what I am to the extent there is anything good in my life. I am that by the grace of God, period. And that's true for you. It's true for you today, and it'll be true for you next week and next year and for the remainder of your life. So it takes some of the, it's supposed to take some of the pressure off, okay? The plan of the world does not depend on you there's a God on a throne who's got a sovereign plan that is going to work exactly as He has said. Take great comfort in that. And then find your righteousness outside of yourself so that you can now, in the comfort of that, look at the decisions before you and make them before God as best you can and then give them to Him. So we want to please God. Let's do it in that kind of environment, with that kind of Uh, mindset then. And if we're going to do that, I said on page eight last week that you need to start with the end in in mind. Start with the end in mind. What is the end? We saw it last week. It is to glorify God. What's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, says the very first question in the famous Westminster uh, Catechism. And, and that is true, and the Bible teaches. Our purpose, our end, is to glorify God. But I said last week, you need to take that a step further. The glory of God, we saw, is the display of the character of God, what God is like. So I, in my, in my personal life, I want to display the character of God in my deportment, in my speech, in my thinking, in my, in my actions, and in my decisions. I want to bring glory to God in those. But that doesn't tell me where I'm supposed to be headed. That just tells me in wherever I've chosen to head, I need to do it in a godly way. Good as far as it goes, it just doesn't go far enough. It doesn't tell me what the the end is like. What is the objective that I am left here on earth to try to accomplish? Why am I here? Why are we here? And I said last week that God's character slash God's glory, same thing, drives God's purpose. God's character, His glory, drives His purpose. So that means that the glory of God, which is what all of us should want to do, glorify God, display His character in our lives, but we need to understand that that desire of God to have His character displayed in His world drives His purpose in this world and His purpose for you and for me in this world. If you separate those, if you separate God's glory from His objective that He has us here on earth for, for the short time we have, if you separate those then your life becomes, practically speaking, your mission done in a godly way. My life is just whatever I like to do, but just do it in a Jesus sort of way. You know, and and if I give it, when I give examples, then I, I, I run the risk of offending somebody in particular, you know, but... Here goes. You know, I over the I'm 60 now. Over my, when I was a teenager, I would golf. When I was a young adult, I would golf. Over the years, I've golfed some. I've never become a good golfer. And over the last few years, I've become an even worse golfer than I was before. So I've pretty much sworn it off. I'm not golfing anymore. Okay, but I was never a an avid golfer. But you know, people have their hobbies, golf being one. So I could. Plug in golf, you could plug in lots of stuff, right? And people can just while their lives away, doing things that are not sinful. Nothing sinful about golf in in itself. Sometimes I thought my golf game was sinful, <laughs> the, the way I played. But there's nothing about the game of golf itself that's sinful. And you know, you could be out on a golf course and you can enjoy God's creation, and you can be praying to God, and you can be thanking God, and you hit a bad shot and you don't curse. And so that pleases God. And there's just all kinds of you know, pleasing God and you know, displaying the character of God out while I'm doing pursuing my agenda. And plug in whatever you want there. And it is my observation that that's the way most Christians live their lives. Most Christians live their lives, plug in my hobbies, what I like to do, Do them in a godly way, and that's that's why I'm here on earth. And the Bible, you know, the Bible could have said that like really fast. You would have fewer pages in your Bible if that was the deal. If Jesus said, you know, the great commission is this. Find what you like to do, and do it the way I'd do it if I were a golfer. If Jesus was a golfer, how would he golf? If Jesus was a boater, how would he boat? If Jesus was a whatever, how would he do it? And that's the way most Christians go about it. It means there are no parameters around my choices. Other than, does it violate something in the Bible? If it doesn't violate something in the Bible, then it's in keeping with God's moral revealed will, and therefore... It's wide open for me to just choose to do it. And that's the way most Christians pursue their lives. So what's next for me? What's next for us? What's next for our family? Last week I showed the 30-second commercial. Remember about the financial planner and the couple that's recently retired and they keep coming into their financial planner and saying, change of plans. Change of plans. Now how are these change of plans coming? Because they, have a, because they have a purpose that they've gleaned from the Word of God, the revealed moral will of God, and they're aligning their lives around it. Is that how these changes have come about? No. Nah. The commercial has them just out and about, and they just say, you know, that'd be cool to do. Let's do that. And from a Christian standpoint, if that is not sinful, go for it. Spend your time. Let me rephrase that. Spend God's time. Because whose time is it that we're spending? Right? Spend God's time. Spend God's money. Spend God's talent and gifting that he gave you for that stuff. John Piper wrote a book years ago called Don't Waste Your Life. That book was actually a sermon that he preached, I think in the year 2000, thereabouts. And he preached it to a group of several thousand young people. And it was a life-changing sermon for those young people. And it it went viral. And then it became this book, Don't Waste Your Life. And he made this kind of case that I'm making, better than I make it, don't waste your life on junk. And he started out with an illustration. and if you were to get that book on the back cover, you would it has this illustration of a couple that spends their life trying to you know, amass enough money to retire to their, their garden spot to their, their little slice of heaven. That's, right? Our, I, got, I got a suggestion for you. Just hold off on heaven until you get there, okay? This is a fallen world. We got work to do. Let's do that, and then there's heaven that awaits. But anyway, their little slice of heaven, and they retire to Punta Gorda, Florida. It actually mentions Punta Gorda, and I say that because I have friends in Punta Gorda, and she wiles away her time getting shells off of the the beach, And then you know they die, as most people do. I think the average is people die like within seven years of retirement or something like that. So you've you've done all this, and then you and then finally we've made it. These are our golden years, and then and then we die. And you know she stands before the Lord, and the Lord says, "You know what did you do with the time I gave you?" And she says, "Hey, look at these shells." That's what Piper says. Hey, look at these, look at my shells. Really, I mean, really. Jesus made those shells. You're going to present shells back, you know, hey, Jesus, you ever seen these? Well, yeah, I made them. As a matter of fact, I made the whole thing, made the whole world, made the universe. And I had you there for your period of time to do my work. Now, if you belong to Christ, you're going to heaven. This is not a judgment that Jesus is going to say, hey, you. You know, you picked up too many shells. You spent too much time doing shell picking up. And so you're not going to heaven. That's not the way it works. But there is a judgment for believers where we'll give an account for what we've done and how we've stewarded what the Lord has entrusted to us. Sobering, is it not? To think about. So otherwise, there are no parameters. It's just about whatever strikes our fancy, whatever comes next doesn't fit into some particular plan because we have this objective that God has given us in His Word revealed. So what is that end? God's character, God's glory drives His purpose. What is that purpose? Page 9. Your mission, should you choose to accept it? And I say God has clearly revealed in the Bible what He wants us to accomplish. The work that God has for us in His Word is no mystery. Many of us know Jesus' last words on earth before He ascended back to heaven as the Great Commission. Yet we often adopt a truncated view of that mission. It just means telling people about Jesus. And therefore, we fail to see our unique role in the vehicle that God has provided to carry out the mission, namely the local church. Appendix A gives a thorough examination of the indispensable role of the local church in the Great Commission. You don't have Appendix A, but I'll give you Appendix A when we conclude the uh, the series. When Paul wrote to the entire church, leaders and laity in the city of Philippi, he commended them for their commitment to this mission. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because here's why your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And and notice the leaders and laity. It's all of you. It's everybody. It's It's not just the paid help. It's not just the clergy. It's the entire church. And the Greek word for partnership there is a Greek word that many of you are familiar with, koinonia. Often translated fellowship, but here it's translated partnership. We have a tendency to define fellowship as a potluck dinner, but the scriptural emphasis is really quite different. It refers to unity based on what we have in common. In particular, we have in common our commitment to the same Lord and the same purpose, namely the biblical mission, partnership in the gospel. So each believer is called to use what God has given in order to achieve the purpose for which He gave it. Is that what I just said right there, that line? Use what God has given in order to achieve the purpose for which he gave it. That's a definition of stewardship. That's a definition of managing God's stuff on behalf of God. And that's what we are here to do. We're to steward what God has given. He's given us time. He's given us talent. He's given us treasure. We're to manage it on his behalf, use it for the purpose for which he gave it. Now this begins with each individual's commitment to the gospel. One cannot participate in the mission until they first participated in the gospel personally, come to Christ. Only by doing that, for salvation from our sins and abandoning our own efforts and hopes, can we enter the gospel of Christ and begin to live life on mission. So the very first thing for you, all of us, to ask ourselves is, do I belong to Jesus Christ? Am I a child of God? Have I come to Him for forgiveness of sin and given my life to him repenting turning from living life for myself but now I'm going to live my life for him 2 Corinthians 5:15 2 Corinthians 5:15 The Bible says he died he died so that those who live will no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them. He died so that we will no longer live for ourselves. He gave himself for us and now we give ourselves to him in his mission. So first, do you belong to him? And then if so, let's start talking about how we align our lives around what he has said we're to do. Bottom of page nine, the church is supposed to be a group of people who participate together in the mission. Therefore, individual believers must come to view themselves as active participants rather than spectators. As one commentator has said, perhaps the greatest single weakness of the contemporary Christian church is that millions of supposed members are not really involved at all, and what is worse, they do not think it strange that they are not. Another has observed, the majority of Christians stand at the edge of the path of obedience waiting for more information. But in light of Christ's unequivocal command, the issue is really not more information, but rather, will we obey? And in order to move from a spectator mentality for all of us to active duty, believers will need to begin asking some probing questions. Do I view my gifts and abilities as resources to serve my church? Am I building my life around the church or the church around my life? Am I building my life around the church or the church around my life? Let me give you one practical way that you can probe that for yourself. The church, we, God's local church, the vehicle through which God has assigned to carry out this mission in His world that all of us are to be partners in, plans, strategizes, puts things together, and then every year puts out a calendar. And so, one just very straightforward way for you to include your life in the life of the church's mission is when that calendar comes out, you then put your calendar together around it, not the other way around. What most of us do is we put our individual lives, we're doing whatever it is we're doing, whatever hobbies we're pursuing, whatever stuff we're pursuing, and then the church is doing things and we see if we can fit it in rather than doing it the other way. You won't always be able to do everything, of course. And that's, that's not the point. But the point is I'm trying to, you're trying to, use your life in that way and to be an active participant as much as possible. We need to ask ourselves, are my leaders doing their job or mine? Do I have a mentality that we pay people to do that? Paul is quite clear that every believer is to be an active participant in God's church. Notice Ephesians 4 Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up as each part does its work. How different is Paul's vision from that of the average American believer? One has said this, we sit on Sunday, as if at a dentist's office, and say to the pastor, well, what are you going to do? But that's not his role. You see, your tithe isn't paying him to do your job. And by the way, I'm quoting somebody else here, okay? (laughs) Just, Just saying. I mean, some of these things really, I know, they get really personal. So I love to quote other people getting personal on my behalf. His job description's already been defined. Instead of monopolizing ministry himself, writes John Stott, he actually multiplies ministries. Your pastor exists to equip you, prepare you for works of service. The church isn't a place where others are obligated to meet your needs. The church is a place where you're equipped to serve others. A great church, as biblically defined, is a church, small or large, where the pastors are building humble, hardworking servants who gladly invest their gifts to build the local church. And in this article, they had an original definition of vision, which is a compelling picture of a preferable future, a church where everyone is serving according to giftedness for the glory of Jesus Christ. What if God's people caught a vision for the, what the church is to be? What if our leaders began to train their congregations in the biblical mission, develop a philosophy of ministry around it? Oh, that would be cool. I'd like a church like that. What could be accomplished for Christ if each member saw his life as an instrument to be used in carrying out the Great Commission? In a book about his experience with Starbucks, Howard Schultz, the one who founded Starbucks, wrote, care more than others think wise, risk more than others think safe, dream more than others think practical, expect more than others think possible. This man's passion to build a business should challenge us. Can we abandon ourselves to that same degree for God's eternal purpose in the local church? By God's grace, through the Holy Spirit within us, we can. After all, we are called and enabled to imitate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is far more passionate about building the church than anyone has ever been about building a corporate empire. So use your gifts to serve your church. Be eager to be a part. Embrace your need for the church. Build your life around the church. Imitate Christ who loved the church and gave himself up for her. Pour your life into it. Make Jesus' passion your passion. And So the mission laid out by Jesus is to make decisions considering first and foremost what will affect what effect it will have on the church, and our mission of building disciples. And I use our mission very intentionally, for it's not the mission of the pastor to build disciples, neither is the mission, the mission of the committed, it is the mission of all of us who should be so committed. All right, we're going to look at the facts of life here in just a bit to conclude, but think about your decisions now. Think about the decisions you make in your life. You know, Start with the big ones. I asked last week, when you made the big decisions in your life, how much did God's purpose fit into those decisions? When you chose a spouse, when you chose a career, when you chose a, a college, when you chose a, a place to live and bought your house. How much did the mission of God fit into those? Now, the truth is, for most of us, not much. Most of us have, frankly haven't been taught this. And so we just made the decisions based on what do we like. But now that you now that you know this, going forward, as you think about, you know, don't start over with the spouse piece. <laughs> okay. Stay with the spouse you have. But you know, if you're going to relocate, why am I relocating? Now, God may want to relocate you. If God wants to relocate you, He can relocate you. Don't believe me. I mean, any number of ways that God can move providentially in your life that you're being relocated. You don't have to... But if you have a discretionary choice, I'm going to relocate. Why am I doing that? How is that advancing the mission? How might it harm the mission? But it won't harm the mission at, at my church because I'm not really very involved and nobody will miss me anyway. And if that's the case, we already got a problem to begin with, right? So you think about relocating. Think about, think about things like, how much should I spend on stuff? Making decisions about how, how much should I spend on stuff. If you can afford, if you can afford and I'm just going to make it up because I think nobody has this. I'm hoping on it. If you can afford a 15,000 square foot house, okay. if I offended anybody, let me know because I want to make sure you're tithing. (laughs) 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 But if you can afford a 15,000 square foot, you can afford it. You're not going to go in debt. You might be able to pay cash for it. Does that mean you should do it? Now, I'm not saying one way or another. I'm just saying, does it, is that the only factor I can afford it? What I'm trying to hammer home here is, no, with all of our decisions, the chief factor is, what's the mission that God's given me to do, and how does this fit into it? Now, it might be, we have people in Scripture who apparently had big places that they lived in, and God used that. They actually had churches that met in those places. And I've known, I've known wealthy people who have, who have been able to buy places and use those places for the Lord and the Lord's work. What a beautiful thing. But they thought about it. They did it for that reason. They didn't just do it because they could. They didn't just do it because I like it. They did it because it's the Lord's work and it's going to advance it. And all of your decisions can be thought of in that light, should be thought of in that light. And then as you practice that, the smaller decisions start to come easier. Should I spend my time doing this? Should I do this or not? You know what? I think this is a more productive thing for the Lord's work. And you know why? Because you have a criteria against which to judge. A criteria against which to evaluate. Most of us have no criteria other than what do we want to do next. And that's not what Jesus has left us here for. So here are the facts of life in our final five minutes. Having established that our mission is the Great Commission, let's now examine the facts of life. Number one, purpose determines life. Our steps are ordered by what we believe to be our purpose. Since many have not given conscious thought to their purpose, the manner in which they live their lives displays the aimlessness that results from such a perspective. But believers have been instructed with regard to our purpose. Our purpose in life is to bring glory to God, to make Him look good by the way we live. But fact number two, God has given you a mission. His mission is to bring glory to Him through your participation in the mission of building the church, learning about Him, and then teaching others, living the truth about God every day through the choices that, that we make. So what the church does, friends, go to page 12, but you know what, what the church does is the church is that, what I called last week, that mirror, mirror repair facility. You guys remember that from last week? Because the mirrors are cracked and broken. And so what we're doing together here is seeing people come to Christ, Him begin now to repair those broken mirrors, and we all participate in that so that as the cracks in all of our lives are gradually repaired, we show a clearer vision of God back to God. We glorify God. And we do that together through His church. That is the mission. Fact number three. God has prepared you to accomplish the mission. God's call to mission does not stand alone. He's equipped us to carry out the mission through his work in our lives on the basis of what Christ did at Calvary when he died for our sins. The Holy Spirit has given to each of us spiritual gifts or talents or abilities to use for carrying out the mission. And as a result, we each have not only the responsibility to be involved in the mission, but the capability of being involved. And all of these verses teach that every Christian is equipped, given ability to do this. Fact number four. God has, I should say, God has called you in the mission. Wait a minute, God has, no, yeah, that's it. God has placed you in the mission, number four. We use the word call often to refer to God's special work in one's life to direct them into a particular vocation. So we talk sometimes of someone being called to the ministry. The words call and vocation are related because the Latin word vox means voice. Therefore, one is urged to hear and obey God's voice, His call to His vocation, His calling, His calling. But contrary to popular opinions, all Christians are actually called to the ministry. The only issue is how and where one will minister, that is serve. In your New Testament, ministry and service are the same words. Our individual calling involves how God has wired us, that's our gifting, our abilities, but also the circumstances in which He has placed us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 Paul talks about God has sovereignly and providentially placed people in different kinds of circumstances. Some people are married, some people are not. Some people in that passage were slaves, some people are not. And he says, stay in the calling that you've been given. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, if you're, he does say, if you're single and you want to get married and you have the opportunity to get married, do that. That would be great. You can use that for the mission. If you're a slave and you're able to get your freedom, he says in that passage, do that. But he, in that passage, in 1 Corinthians 7, he's saying that what you do in the situation you're in is more important than the situation itself. And so don't spend your life worrying about changing the, your situation. If God allows that, great, do it. But God can and will use you in the situation that He called you in when you came to Christ. Top of page 13. Therefore, all decisions should seek to advance the mission. Your first decision must be to join the mission by coming to Christ for salvation. That's the first step. Decisions regarding how I pursue service and where I serve should intentionally seek to advance the mission. So I may seek training to enhance how I serve, or I may change where I serve to a more needy area. But all of it is done for the mission. So you might relocate. But relocate for a better reason other than I just like it. Relocate because there's a place that you're going to move to that needs your talents and abilities to advance the mission of God more than we need it here. If you do that, I'll help you pack. Praise God for people who move to do that. Or you may say, you know what? There's a school, there's a seminary I'm going to go to. I'm going to get trained, and I'm going to get better training to pursue the mission. We'll help you pay for that. I'm serious. It's that important, but you make your decisions that way. God's will is found in the box in doing what He has commanded you, how He has wired you, and where He has placed you. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for the blessings of this Lord's Day, the opportunity to be with Your people, but more important, for You to be with us and to sing praise to You, give back to You, learn of You from Your Word. And Lord, in this hour, we thank You for the examples that You've given of so many people. Some of them we know nothing about other than just one line in your word about what they did to advance your mission, and they're commended for their partnership in the gospel. May we be people who desire to be that, to be used as your instruments in what you are doing in your world, and then make our decisions accordingly. And then, Lord, we thank you for all of the great byproducts that come out of that, including that it takes the worry out of what we do. We're making our decisions for You. We know we will make them imperfectly. We commit that to Your sovereign plan, and we thank You that our righteousness is not found in us and our choices, but in Jesus and His perfect life. So go with us this week and help us to ponder and to implement these things in our life. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.